Hey listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. SMA is the perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation and don't forget to mention Startup CPG. I think it's important, if you can, to get a foundational experience set. Whatever that is, but with a company that has some kind of systems, process, procedure, structure, potentially good skill sets that you can acquire, tools that I refer to as arrows in your quiver, you can shoot one day, and you're learning on someone else's nickel versus your own nickel. I mean, learning on your own nickel is really, really expensive. And in this world of CPG that we operate in, it's a very distinct language. Welcome to the Startup CPG Podcast. Today's guest is Jeff Church, the legendary CEO of Suja Juice, as well as Rowdy Energy. Jeff joins us to share his lessons on beverage entrepreneurship, taking risks and growing brands. And also he has some news to share about the future of Rowdy Energy and what he'll be up to next. As somebody who started a beverage brand from scratch myself, I really appreciated these learnings. Hope you all enjoy. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Startup CPG podcast. Today's guest is Jeff Church. Jeff is a 35-year entrepreneurial veteran, CPG consultant and advisor, and the founder of TeamChurch.co. Jeff is also known for his remarkable achievements as the CEO and co-founder of Suja Juice, where he led the brand to a whopping $100 million in revenue within six years. He is recognized as Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year, BevNet's Person of the Year. He's a Harvard Business School alumnus and former Ernst & Young CPA, and he shares his insights through <laughs> consulting, fundraising, and public speaking as well. And I'm just really excited to have him here on the podcast today to go through a lot of accomplishments along his career and some of the key learnings that he's had. So Jeff, welcome. It is so good to have you here on the show. Thank you, Daniel. I'm super excited about being here, so appreciate it. All right. So, Jeff, with somebody who has such a storied career with so many different stages and accomplishments as yourself, I would love if maybe we could just give everybody a quick overview of your career background. So where did it start? What were the key points for you getting to where you are today? Great. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Well, I grew up in the Midwest in Cleveland, Ohio, a very Midwestern middle class background. Went to college at Michigan State. So I went out of state from Ohio and studied counting became a CPA, spent four years with Ernst & Young in their uh, Cleveland office. And last year, I was able to spend a year in their M&A merger and acquisition group. And this is in the early 80s, so this dates me way, way back. But I uh, was able to really build some models, learn how to talk with investors, talk with companies about buying or selling parts of their businesses, and really fell in love with the M&A side of it. And then decided to go to business school. So I went to Harvard Business School. Unfortunately, Harvard doesn't necessarily have great reputation these days in the world, but you know, went there and really loved it and got a ton out of their MBA program and had an opportunity after business school to go work for like a mini General Electric. So a business that had its kind of fingers in a lot of different things and a lot of different things geographically. And I was able to go into a troubled company of theirs. And I was 27 at the time and they promoted me to president of the division within about six months. And it was a very difficult business that ended up not making it. But I learned a ton of great learning lessons in my late 20s of running businesses and working with people and working with a militant labor union and a whole bunch of things. And then I worked for a bunch of other subsidiaries within this company, same company for about 12 years, laddering up to running their full North and South American group of businesses, which was about 250 million in revenue and 11 businesses throughout North and South America. So I got a lot of really good international experience. And about the time I was about 38, I started just having this itch to really want to take that entrepreneurial plunge. 
And I remember my mom wanted me to do it because your mom is always pushing you to do it. She thinks you can do anything right. My wife wanted to do it. And she was like really risk tolerant. And I was kind of in the middle, risk averse and risk tolerant. And I just couldn't quite pull the trigger. And I remembered back to a situation that happened to me when I was in high school, which was like 20 years earlier. And I was a senior in high school. I'll tell a quick story, but I was a senior in high school and we'd lost every game for my junior and senior year. We were in the second to last game of the year. I was a receiver. I was out in the end zone with a minute to go in the game. I already had a pretty good game. I caught a touchdown pass. The quarterback was rolling out. We were down by four points, so we needed a touchdown to win. And I was in the end zone, and he was rolling out. And I had this split second, like, do I raise my hand and have him throw me the ball and catch it and be the hero or drop it and be the goat? And I had to make this split decision on do I raise my hand so he sees me or do I not raise my hand and maybe he doesn't see me. It felt like an hour, but it was literally a second or two in my brain. But I didn't raise my hand. And he didn't see me. He got tackled. We lost the game. We went ahead and lost the next game. So we went 0-20 in my, in my high school sports career in football. And I just couldn't let it go in my brain. I'm like, why couldn't I raise my hand? Why wasn't I ready to take that on? Yeah, at some level, I agonized about it over the years. And, but it kind of came full circle when I was getting ready to take this entrepreneurial plunge and take this jump. I'm still struggling. Why I didn't raise my hand? So it started to occur to me that I was channel surfing late one night. I was about 38, as I mentioned. It was about two in the morning, and I came across this interviewer who was interviewing a bunch of senior citizens who had had successful careers. He was going around the room asking every one of them what they had wished they'd done differently in their career. And every single one of them to a person said that they wished they had taken more risk in their professional careers. That clicked with me, and all of a sudden I realized that not raising my hand in the end zone was an incredible learning experience for me developmentally because now I realized I was ready to take that plunge because now at 38, I was more afraid of mediocrity than I was of failure. But way back when I was 17 and a senior in high school, I was way more afraid of failure and what that might look like and how that might hurt me than I was of mediocrity. So over the course of that 20-year period, my paradigms, it just shifted to now I want to take the shot. If I fail, I fail. But like being an entrepreneur, as you know, you have the opportunity to like jump socioeconomic classes, if you will because it's not just linear. You can actually do something really disruptive. It's very risky. Once I saw that, it just made so much sense to me. I literally quit my job, worked out a nine-month transition plan because I was the president of a pretty big group and began looking for companies. So I took the entrepreneurial plunge, but it was really just being more afraid of being a mediocrity in my life than I was a failure at that point in time. Okay, so you said basically when you were in high school, it was more because the fear of failure for you yes. was greater than the legendary success that you could have by catching the winning touchdown. So that's what drove you to do it. But then later in life, you flipped the script and just decided to go for it. But if you're somewhere in between risk averse and a risk taker, did you feel like there was a certain point where you had to get to in terms of a safety net, you know, wealth before you could really let yourself do that? Or did you still feel like it was just really terrifying to go for it? I think about that a lot. And I talk with young people about that a lot, too. And I have four kids that are in their late 20s, early 30s. So they're in a similar situation. I think a lot of times we have this thing that everything's got to be right before I take this plunge, this entrepreneurial plunge. I got to have my spouse. I've got to be ready to do that. I've got to have enough nest egg in the bank. I like to think like I quit my job when my fourth child was being born that month, knowing I didn't have the income. I was going to lose my income. So I don't think you should wait necessarily to go on with your life to do this entrepreneurial plunge. There's a timing for it. Maybe that timing is earlier, maybe that timing is late, but it's got to be right for you. But I tell people like, you know, don't put your life on hold. Certain things have to get done before you take it. Because I believe that people in their 20s, 30s and 40s, you know, we kind of get like one good opportunity that comes across in each of those decades of our lives. And we don't have to take them, those opportunities to really take that entrepreneurial plunge or to do something disruptive. But you know, once you get into your 50s and 60s, things change a little bit and your time perspectives and paradigms change. Your risk tolerance seems to drop a little bit. But when you're in your 20s, 30s and 40s, risk tolerance is something that is important to be able to digest. And I was always a very middle of the road person. My wife is from Morocco, came from nothing, had nothing. And so she's very risk tolerant, roll the dice all the time. For me, I have to be much more calculated. And I had this vision, Daniel, that entrepreneurs were these kind of swashbuckling Ted Turners from CNN and those kind of larger than life people and they had to be born. But actually entrepreneurs are really made. There's tools that you can learn to be an effective entrepreneur. There's the whole risk tolerance, risk aversion. So I think about risk tolerance and risk aversion a lot to answer your question.
So you started being an entrepreneur at 38. So you had a lot of experience to fall back on and probably some savings. So if it didn't work out, there was a probably decent career path still waiting for you. A lot of the entrepreneurs that I see in our community, I think typically people think of them as, you know, maybe mid 20s or early 30s, kind of just going for it and they're betting their whole career on it which is great if it works out, but also there is a lot of risk inherent in that where you're not building up necessarily the same career path and skills that you might need if you try to jump back. If it doesn't work out, you jump back into the kind of formal career path. So how do you think about that for people who are all the entrepreneurs that just jump right in, maybe right out of college or? That's a good question. I have two kids that went to college and became life coaches at 24 and 25. And I'm the life of me, I'm like, okay, well, how are you a life coach with a lack of experience? But I do understand that today's generation approaches it a little differently than maybe my generation approached it. But I think it's important, if you can, to get a foundational experience set, whatever that is, but with a company that has some kind of systems, process, procedure, structure, potentially good skill sets that you can acquire, tools that I refer to as arrows in your quiver, you can shoot one day, and you're learning on someone else's nickel versus your own nickel. I mean, learning on your own nickel is really, really expensive. And in this world of CPG that we operate in, it's a very distinct language. And the language, it's not that the language is that hard, it's just a language that takes a little bit of time to figure out. And it takes a cycle or two of going through things to understand, okay, this is what that really meant. This is what I should have done. But those cycles, if you're paying for those on your own, become very expensive cycles. So that's not to say that you can't or shouldn't start it right in your 20s. But if you have the opportunity to go get, you know, three, four, five years of good foundational experience, that doesn't mean you have to put your dream or your entrepreneurial idea on hold. You can percolate it on the side, just like it's a hobby for you. And then when those two things merge at some point in time, either when you have liquidity, you have a little bit of investment capital, or you have the right opportunity, you meet the right people, you know, then you can kind of pull those together. But I like to have, if people can have a foundational understanding of stuff, it doesn't even have to be in the same segment or industry, but just a learning of how to work in groups of people, goal planning and process. There's a lot of like basic stuff you get. That said, if you've got the winning idea and you're comfortable with the outcomes, take the shot if it all lines up. From my perspective, I knew that I could go back and get a job making a quality earning as a CEO or a president of a business. So I wasn't afraid of that failure. I mean, that really speaks to me, I think, because me personally, I am actually pretty risk averse. And I've kind of backed into the entrepreneurial journey of that way of going to big companies, I would say progressively smaller ones, but trying to build up my skill set and perspective before doing something a little bit riskier, also knowing I could always go back to that, even though I love the startup world a lot. Yeah, the other thing, Daniel, is it's important with the risk thing is if you have a significant other, I see a lot of potential relationships where, you know, one spouse is really risk tolerant, so go, 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 and the other one is really risk averse, so kind of foot on the brake and one's on foot on the accelerator. And sometimes that works out for a really good marriage because, you know, you're balanced. But if you're thinking about taking on big risk and your spouse isn't necessarily aligned with it, your significant other isn't necessarily aligned with it, then that's a problem. I know people that have like launched into business without even really telling their spouses what they're doing and it doesn't create the best family dynamic, especially if your spouse is of a different ilk when it comes to risk. Yeah. And just one more question before we jump into some of the brands that you started. So you went to business school in the 80s, I think you said, and then had a pretty big job coming right out of it. I went to business school, finished in 2009, and I don't think people were getting hired to just run big divisions of companies at that point. I think a lot of us just went in to be consultants, kind of rank and file at that level. But what do you say to people who ask you if business school is worth it, people who are interested in careers in CPG? I feel like there's enough courses and groups and things like startup CPG or other type stuff online that you can really get a lot of the skill acquisition and skill set. And obviously, you can get a lot of the community, you know, as well, too. So I think you can get the majority of the skill acquisition without doing your MBA. I think the one thing that the MBA helps with is networking and connections and people. I mean, to this date, I have 20 guys that we travel to a ski trip or a long weekend trip once a year. We've been doing it for the last 35 years. And those relationships are pretty invaluable. I mean, not all connect with CPG or anything like that, but you know, they're pretty unique relationships to be able to tap into. So I think that was the differentiator. But the skill acquisition, I wouldn't have been prepared to launch a startup CPG business out of business school. They don't really prepare you for that. I mean, I think the tools and you know, resources that portals like yourself have are, frankly, much more valuable than the, the stuff that they teach in MBA school. 
Got it. Thank you. I'll add, I just really am a fan of the side hustle, taking some of these great experiences you can get, whether it is going to business school or working in a job that has some really good structure and process and then doing your thing on the side, which can supercharge your learning and then help you warm up an idea before you figure out if it's big enough to really take a swing at. So I really like what you said. So, okay, now just jumping more into actually starting a brand. So tell me about starting your first brand. Well, starting my first brand was, um, so I have a combination of eight companies that I've either started or acquired since I went off on my own and took that entrepreneurial plunge. And I like to look at those, see, okay, how did I do? What did I do wrong? What did I do right? You know, of those eight, you know, there's been four that I would consider to be in a baseball analogy, home runs. Been one was a double, and there have been three that have been strikeouts. And unfortunately, the strikeout's really painful, but fortunately for the strikeouts, you tend to learn the most from the things that you fail at. And about six or seven years ago, I did a deep dive into the, at the time, it was two brands that had not made it, two businesses that hadn't made it. And I wanted to look at what was different between the two that hadn't made it and the five that were successful. And it came down to overwhelmingly the concept of the ones that were successful had something disruptive that the ones that were not successful did not have. The ones that were not successful were more commodity type businesses that I bought at a good valuation, whereas the ones that were successful were either acquired or started up, but they were something disruptive. It couldn't be a route to market. It can be something functional in a product. It can be in a unique team. It can be in a unique offering. It can be an IP. It can be in a variety of things. It doesn't have to be any one thing, but something that's going to protect you know, that gross margin over the longer period of time so it's not eroded. So I began to then try to change my filter. But my first startup that I really did was Nico Water, which was I did with my kid when they were in middle school and high school. And it was about us creating a bottled water company in the United States and selling the water here and almost in like a Newman's own model, you know, where all the profits were donated back to charity. All of our profits were donated back to bring clean water to people around the world that didn't have access to it. And so we sold bottled water here in the United States, used the profits from that to bring clean water to people around the world. And, you know, with my kids and others, we went and opened up water systems, education systems, microfinance systems in a whole bunch of countries throughout the world. And through over a four or five year period, we brought clean water education and microfinance to about 31,000, you know, people. So a lot of social entrepreneurship, a lot of, you know, really good stuff came out of that and really taught my kids entrepreneurship, my nieces and nephews. And that was a really great thing from that perspective. Unfortunately, I probably picked the wrong category in bottled water. I probably should have picked something like sunglasses or something that have a naturally a much higher profit margin. So it became a difficult business for us really to sustain. But over the course of that four or five year period, we did donate several million dollars and brought clean water to a lot of people. So I kind of got the bug at that point in time about doing a startup. And around about a few years before that, I was in a business called Link's Professional Grills, which was an outdoor gas grill company, similar to a Viking. And it was at the time in 2007, where there was a lot of focus on outdoor kitchens and bringing like restaurant grade quality into your homes. And this was a really great product, but didn't have a lot of love on it. The product itself was good. It just had a little bit of mismanagement. So I went in and bought it. I don't mind doing turnarounds as long as they're what I call feather dusters, that they're not structurally broken, but I can kind of, you know, optically clean things up, make them look better, and then and hopefully remove the block that's hurting them and move on. And it was the first time I really got to touch and interface with the consumer because the businesses I'd been in before that were more industrial B2B. But working with the consumer, I just fell in love with. I fell in love with what I called it cul-de-sac innovation, where I will take, if it's suja and the juice, bring the juices to my kids. If it's rowdy, I'll bring the energy drinks to my kids. And my wife's a big griller, so I'll get her input. I love the connection of the consumer. And that was really my first touch to that. So since then, I've really only done consumer and consumer businesses. But Nika was the first startup that I did. That's amazing, basically a nonprofit model and grow it to millions of dollars in sales. Did you find consumers were just really open? Did they know what the mission of the company was? Did that make it way more likely that they would be picking it up right off the bat? First of all, creating awareness is very, very difficult, as you know, and a product isn't out there, particularly in a sea of products that are known. So it's very difficult to create you know, that awareness. I had hoped that the vocalness of the market on social entrepreneurship and businesses are giving back and doing it and working on profit, but also working on social impact and all that kind of stuff. I felt like that would really move the needle. Unfortunately, what I realized is that there are vocal extremes on either end of the spectrum, if you will, whatever bell curve you're looking at, but they tend to be the vocal minority. So they may be really loud, 
and what they're talking about on social entrepreneurship and only helping brands that are better for you and helping brands that have a social purpose. But when people get to their pockets, they get a lot stingier when it comes to buying stuff. And, you know, I've found that people that want to give kind of want to choose how they want to give on their own versus give through a product. So it gave me a little bit of a different perspective on that than I had expected. Yeah, great. Okay. Hey listeners, are you working on your email and SMS marketing strategy and not getting the results you're looking for? Or do you wish you had a little more time and a lot more resources? Don't worry, Strategy Maven has your back. Building a successful strategy is no easy task, but their mavens or experts will help you establish an email and SMS marketing program that will attract, engage, and retain customers to help grow your brand. SMA is a perfect partner for you if you're not getting the results you're looking for, or your overall email attributed revenue is less than 30%, or you have way too much on your plate and not enough resources, or you started with another agency or freelancer and they dropped the ball. Strategy Maven Agency treats your brand as if it was their own. They provide the expertise and support your business needs to scale and thrive. Visit strategymavenagency.com to get started with a free consultation and don't forget to mention Startup CPG. So it sounds like that gave you a lot of beverage industry learnings also. So can you take me through what it was like with Suja Life, the beginnings and just some of the key learnings yeah. there? Wild and fun and crazy and everything in between. But I met a young guy named Eric Ethans who was making these incredible, these dark green juices. And one of his friends was a guy named James Brennan, who ended up, Eric and James were my partners in Suja. And James kept coming to me out and we were in another business together. And he'd bring these god-awful dark green juices. Remember, I'm a Midwestern meat and potatoes guy. So for me, green juices is a bit of a foreign concept. And he kept telling me, you got to try this, you got to try this. I'm not, I'm not, it was, it was in a glass bottle, no label. And eventually I tried it. And it like literally stopped me in my tracks. And I felt like if I can drink a dark green juice, anybody on the planet can drink a dark green juice. And we kind of over time proved a lot of that out, which was really you know, fun, you know, to kind of look back on it. But we thought we began to look at, we had a really good product, but it only had a three-day shelf life because there was no, there was no kill step on the back end to protect it, you know, from pathogens and stuff like that. So it wasn't even a legal product to be selling that he was selling, but it was really good. So I started looking at, okay, what could we do with this? I didn't want to pasteurize it because it's already been done by Naked and Odwall and other brands like that. So we began to look at what are alternative kill steps that are less invasive and provide you with better quality of the functional ingredients. And we learned about HPP or high pressure processing, which basically Evolution Fresh and Blueprint Cleanse were just starting to do. They were the two in the front, the main two brands in the category and uses pressure instead of heat to kill pathogens if they happen to be in there. So it's really much better from an efficacy standpoint, you know, from a consumption. So I thought, okay, that makes sense. It's not going to be as competitive as like pasteurization, tunnel pasteurization or stuff like that that goes goes really fast. So it's going to be a little more batchy, but we felt like that was going to be better for the product and kind of the offering and the guardrails and stuff like that. So we got the idea in like, a, say, April of 2012, we literally were on the shelf in Whole Foods, Southern California in September of that same year. It, really interesting, Daniel. I went to Whole Foods with my water company, Nika, and I flew across the country at the time. I was living on the East Coast and I literally got three minutes with a buyer, but because it was a crowded category, they didn't really want to see me. But when I got in front of the buyer with Suja, the buyer was like, yeah, come on in. You know, it was the category was right for them. So the category was right for Whole Foods. And they felt like it was going to be a really big category. And they wanted to find another brand that they could put in alongside Evolution and Blueprint. And that Suja could be that brand. And we were like humbled, you know, that they were interested in us. And But I think they looked at us as a distant third. And Blueprint was on the East Coast. We were on the West Coast. So it was a good fit. It turned out that they were right by bringing us in. And then others in, we grew the, their overall category of cold-pressed juice by more than 50%. What they didn't expect is that we were the ones that ended up being the winner you know, of the category. And we didn't necessarily expect that. And we didn't have an opinion of that in the beginning. We were just happy to be a part of it. But literally within three months of starting Suja, both Blueprint Cleanse and Evolution Fresh were acquired by larger companies. And as oftentimes happens with larger companies, that you lose the founder focus. And so those businesses just kind of went off to the side of the road. And we were left sitting in this on this highway with no cars on it in the middle of the road. Our thing was, we just got to keep the stick in the middle of the road here and succeed. We should be a winner here. 
So we were able to just focus on execution. And as you know, execution is one of those things that is more controllable than things like the demand. How are you going to get enough demand? Are you going to get enough velocity? But kind of blocking and tackling fundamental execution, we can be good at that. So you know, we began on that process and it took off. And we, again, when we launched it, Suja only had a 23-day shelf life because we were using the HPP, but we didn't have the right sanitation procedures. We didn't have a plant. We had a makeshift plant. So it wasn't as clean as we wanted it to be today. It's probably 100 days on shelf life on most of the products, and that's through improved process and sanitation. But in the beginning, we I'm in San Diego. I would drive the truck, a 30-foot box truck, from San Diego to Long Beach every day, drop the product off, and wait for yesterday's batch to be picked up and bring it back down to San Diego. So it was a all it was a full on do everything as a founder type experience. Yeah, well, that's amazing. And I'm just curious, you know, how do buyers actually decide when they think a trend is ripe, or you know, when it's time for more brands within a particular space? You know, I see when Whole Foods, for example, puts out their trends for the year because they just saw the competitive brands, they saw Evolution Fresh or whoever just starting to increase in sales, and that's when they decide this is going to be important for the category and I want more space. Or is it gut feel from the buyer just about trends for consumers? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. It depends on the retailer. And some retailers are very formulaic in what they do. And you have to do is stay on the shelf. And some are much more subjective. I'd say Whole Foods was one of the more subjective ones. Probably has changed a bit since with the Amazon involvement with Whole Foods transitioning as it has transitioned. But Errol and Dwight were two of the legends at Whole Foods for a long time. And they love to incubate new thoughts. And I think with Whole Foods, and you see this with Costco that are more regionally driven in a lot of their decisions and regionally you know, focused in their operations, as things will start in a region and then they'll get traction. And then the other divisions, other regions will see that and they'll want to pull that product in. So when we launched it in Southern California, within a month or two, the Rocky Mountains and the Texas regions of Whole Foods had seen our performance because they can see the numbers and they wanted to bring us in. And then a couple of months later, another couple of reasons wanted to bring us in. Within a year, we had full distribution within Whole Foods. And it was a lot of it was, I would say, timing and luck. But a lot of it was also, we were very, very flexible. So we started with a $9.99, 16-ounce product. Because my partner, Eric, was selling these at people's doorsteps at $13, 16-ounce bottle. And we felt like we had to be under a $10 price cliff, if you will, as a minimum. But still, $10 for a bottle of juice is expensive. And we were getting it in Whole Foods. But we knew that we're not going to get it in middle America in a Kroger banner, let's say, which is really important to us to build a billion-dollar significant brand. So we began to think we've got to come up with a second product that is priced at $3.99 or some price point that's lower that we can reduce the ounces. We're not going to make the same profit margin, but at least we can have a product that can go where the mass can go. So and hopefully it's about, I don't know, six months into, not even six months into it, three months into us launching Suja came to us and said they want to create their own proprietary uh, line. They want a brand to do it, so they don't want it under their brand name. But they were asking for us, Evolution and Blueprint, to all pitch on a line. And we all did at Expo West that was coming up in 2013, like three or four months later. We scrambled. I mean, not many brands that I know would come up with an entirely separate product line within three months of just launching their business. So I'm very much of the attitude, Daniel, that when opportunity knocked, I mean, you don't say, hang on, I got to finish my dinner. I mean, you kind of grab it by the throat and you wrestle to the ground, you make things happen. Otherwise, you don't know when that opportunity is necessarily going to come back. So I'm sure it costs me more money to do it. Most significant natural foods retailer in the world approaches you and wants to do this. I mean, you jump. I mean, I jumped and we jumped and we showed up at that Expo West at their Whole Foods meeting where they had all their regions and we had 45 minutes to present our products and we nailed it. I mean, we really, Brian Ribley, our culinary I mean, he killed it. And he's a Culinary Institute of America trained chef. And he just the formulas that he made were amazing. They picked all of our flavors. And, you know, we launched that at Whole Foods the following year. So we had two product lines in Whole Foods. And we knew that the long-term strategy was to reduce the 16-ounce and just have the 12-ounce. But we really needed to kind of harvest the margin umbrella, if you will, from the higher price ones to help pay for us. Because we were so early in our development that we didn't have our cogs down to the levels that we needed them to be at. And the product that you were doing for Whole Foods, were they very different from your line or mainly different flavors? Yeah, that's the challenge is they were very much the same because you can't, we use just natural ingredients. 
We don't use any additives or anything. It's just fruits and vegetables. So we did get a 25% savings by dropping it from a 16 ounce to a 12 ounce. But the product itself is the same. Mm -hmm. That put us in a bit of an awkward position because we've got these two product lines out there that are kind of the same. So we had to deal with that for a couple of years until we phased out the 16 ounce product line. But I mean, it was a transition that I know a lot of people that will launch products that are frankly too high priced. And if you're too high priced, you just have to judge the elasticity of demand to understand are people willing to go over that cliff. And I think in a lot of cases, there are certain cliffs that are, at least in the beverage space, that are super important. Like $3 is a very important cliff in the beverage space. And if you're over $3, that's a a mass product. That's a difficult price point to be successful at. I think we were successful at it. People were able to realize that, you know, most products, whether energy drinks or a lot of sodas, that kind of stuff, you literally have a water content that's probably 75% of the total formula. Whereas in Suja, it was 100% fruit and vegetable. So it was just a more expensive product. Got it. And people always ask about when's the right time to consider private label opportunities. A lot of people would say, if you have a real innovation that nobody else has, don't jump into that too early to compete with yourself. But maybe in this instance, because there were a couple other brands in the category already growing and Whole Foods was asking for the pitches, it was going to be you or somebody else. It maybe was more of a no brainer for you to just jump in for it. Yeah, I think on the private labeling, I think it comes down to, are you a manufacturer or are you co-packing? Because if you're co-packing, which is what most of us do in this space, it's difficult to do a private label because then you got another margin layer that you're adding on top of that. We were manufacturing. So when you're a manufacturer, the challenge you have is you don't have enough stuff running through your plant in order to amortize your costs to get to the lowest level. So private label, if you're a manufacturer, notwithstanding the strategic implications, but from a COG standpoint, from a profit standpoint, is a really smart thing to do. Now, the strategic impact of it is I'm not as hung up as a lot of people are on private label because retailers are going to do it. If that's their strategy to do it, they're going to do it. And you might as well be absorbing that overhead with it if you're a manufacturer than someone else and, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer, you know, almost if you will. I mean, you got to align that a bit with your retailers is, you know, keep them really close to you. But then the other thing with us and is speed to market. The nice thing about doing your own manufacturing is you can get into the market very, very quickly. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, cool. So not to jump forward too fast, but you know, because there's a lot for us to cover. You were at Suja for eight years, I think, and then jumped right into Rowdy Energy. Can you tell me a little bit more about, you know, what was it like at the end of your time with Suja? And how did you decide to then start a new venture? You know, how'd you come up with the idea and decide to go for it? Yeah, great. So the end of Suja, we had gone through a transition where Coke had bought half the Coke and Goldman Sachs had bought half of Suja in 2015 at a roughly a $300 million valuation. And the plan was for Coke to buy the balance of the company in 2018. And we were part of the VEB group within Coke's Venture Emerging Brands. And it was something I was sensitive to when I did the initial deal with them. Would they close on a two-step deal and talk to me over and over about they've never not closed on a two-step deal? And this is when Mutar Kent was the CEO of, of Coke. Well, I did my deal with Mutar, and then fast forward three years later, they had a regime change. There was new leadership in Coke. And, you know, anytime there's a regime change, you know, what I've learned is, you know, that new leader, they don't really want any baggage they didn't create attached to them. And I think you see, unless things were going absolutely perfectly, Coke didn't really move forward with any of their two-step, you know, acquisitions. And in fact, Coke made a strategic decision to get out of, you know, more of the, the non-shelf-stable products so that more stuff could ride on their truck. Like they've gotten out of Honest Tea, they've gotten out of Zico, gotten out of Odwalla, didn't close on Suja. They didn't tell us that at the time, which would have been really nice of them to tell us because we thought it was us. And we literally got to the date three years later and Coke had come into our plant earlier the month in June and they were supposed to let us know at the end of June. And they had done a presentation of what it's like to be part of the Coke organization. And literally they no bid us on the last day. My entire 300 person factory get a presentation of what it's like to be in the Coke organization. And then two weeks later, they didn't execute on their, told us that they weren't going to go forward. So it was a real kick in the gut. I liken it to being, I've never been left at the altar, but I've written a book that I'm probably about three quarters of the way done. And it starts with um, my first chapters being left at the altar. So it'll be interesting, interesting reading, but you know, deal with them. And then we were left in a situation where they passed. We had a lot of debt. We were losing eight to $10 million a year. And we were like in a world of hurt. And this is in 2018. I was able to restructure the debt, push it out a little bit, bring in some short-term capital, even though it was dilutive, cut the crap out of the entire business, 
And we had had the shot business that had been growing. And my wife and one of our team members had a shot idea years earlier. And we were concerned about shots not being a little two ounce shots, like the five hour, but really better for you. And we were concerned about where are they going to go in the store? They're going to get football around. So we'll lose the opportunity. So we kind of wanted to wait for somebody to come out, but we really had a line developed. So then all of a sudden, a couple of brands came out and got some traction and we felt like it was time to go. And the beauty of shots from Suja's perspective is you're talking about a 60% gross margin and a much higher gross margin than, you know, the cold press juices, for example, just because the volume so much less. So they literally helped us transform the company. And I think the shots, they are a very big part of the company's business. So we had that product ready. Who knows what would happen if we launched it earlier, but we also got the benefit of it then. And then eventually we found a private equity firm that was interested in buying the business and we sold the business, but I was ready at the time, burned out. We had done something like nine or 10 fundraising rounds in the eight years that I was there. And I really drove those rounds. And those are for entrepreneurs that have done fundraising rounds. If they're kind of unexpected or more than investors expect, you're kind of giving away a body part with each late fundraising round. So, I mean, we're very challenging to do. We were in a period of time when retailers, as they often do, when they see something good, they bring too many brands in. So they over proliferate the segment. And that's what retailers did. They brought in six or seven, eight cold pressed juices. And the market's not that big to be able to handle that. And kombucha was coming at the time. And so we saw a big transition with retailers reducing the amount of cold pressed juices, but they reduced other ones that weren't suja. So we really benefited from that reduction by improving our market share. And you know, now they've got two or three brands, which is probably what they should have. So think that you could have gone back and done differently a decision? It could have gone the other way to cut the burn that you had, the eight or nine million a year that you guys were losing. Is there some big strategic decision you could have taken along the way to improve your profitability? Yep, there's a couple for sure. One is getting my gross profit margin to 40%. So we were manufacturing, so there was no co-packing network for what we did. There was no HVP network for what we did. So we had to do our own manufacturing, which I've done my whole career, so I'm not opposed to that. It just costs more money. So in Suja, for this excludes any liquidity activity, but over the 10-year period, we raised about $110 million in total, of which about 60 of it went into our various manufacturing plants we built along the way. And then the other 50 or so went into brand building, covering losses until the revenue got to a high enough level. And what I deep dive on, what would have happened if I had been able to get the gross profit margin to 40% after the second year, starting in year three? And believe it or not, it would have lowered the total raise from 110 million to about 50 million. So just getting the gross profit up, it averaged about 28, 29% for the first five years or so. And then it started ticking up as we got size, as we got the shots and all that happened today. It's a very healthy gross margin. What would you have done? You would have increased price or you would have, you know, I just would have focused on, I would have focused on it more. I mean, we were growing fast. So at some level, you were just trying to hold on. Like our first year sales were 600,000. Our second year sales were 18 million. Our third year were 44. Our fourth were 67. And then it kind of went off from there. So they were really kind of disruptive, dynamic growth. Some level, just trying to hold on and hold on with a safe product. But I would have allocated more time, more professional management to getting that COGS down which is really one of the reasons we went with the Coke deal was we felt like they could get us into the food service space. This didn't really happen, but that would have been a really big opportunity for the brand that would have really helped us with our COGS. But just getting that gross margin up to 40% and being diligent. And I can pretty easily today look at someone's COGS and say, okay, I think we can probably take 20% out of your COGS in a fairly short period of time you know, by doing these handful of things. So I feel like it's out there to do. It's just a question of, are you focusing on it? But just that one thing would have made that significant of a difference. Yeah, really interesting to hear. And I'm sure that resonates with a lot of brands these days trying to figure out growth versus profitability. Okay, so then fast forwarding, tell me about starting Rowdy Energy and what the progression has been like. So right at the time I was about to transition out of Suja, I got a call from a NASCAR driver. His name's Kyle Bush. He's one of the top NASCAR drivers. And he had been an energy drink ambassador for Monster for a number of years, really liked the space and wanted to get into it. And he had found me as a beverage entrepreneur and he approached me about potentially partnering and doing an energy drink together. And I looked at the space with him and I said, definitely interested as long as we can find kind of consumer white space and retailer incrementality. Because if you don't, then they're not going to put you on the shelf on a crowded space. And if they do put you on the shelf, you're not going to get off the shelf because consumers aren't going to pull the product because it's not white space to them. So we did a deep dive into it and looked at a lot of Mintel data. 
And I've figured out that men and women both consume about the same amount of caffeine on a daily basis, but you know, energy drinks are probably 65% male, 35% female. And when you look at it, it's because women generally feel like the energy drinks are full of crap. And they are 99%, even Celsius, a good quality, high quality brand uses artificial sweeteners. So it's like, we decided we're going to create a all natural, better for you energy drink called Rowdy. Maybe one of the mistakes was calling it Rowdy. Rowdy is Kyle's nickname in the NASCAR world. And he really wanted to have that name probably for a better for you energy drink that may not have been the best name with hindsight as I've kind of diagnosed and we might've been able to do differently with it, but launched the better for you product. I think because of maybe my background in CPG and Kyle's background in the energy drink or in driving and as a celebrity, we were able to get really broad distribution and we grew into probably 25,000 doors within 18 months. The product wasn't turning fast enough. And what we realized is that, and one of the mistakes I made was that I had set up a rule at Suja that are learning. You don't have to be first in the market. You just don't want to be 51st. We were third in the cold press juice market. In the energy drink market, I kind of violated my lesson learned. And we were probably 101st. So very crowded space. So if you get in there and you're in a big set, it's growing. It's kind of an illusion because it's growing fast. It's the fastest growing large segment that we have. It's an $18 billion segment growing at 8, 7, 8% a year. So it's really attractive with two brands that make up 80% of the total and breakout brands that are coming, you know, like Celsius and others. And so it's very attractive to look at, but it's very hard to break in. And when you do break in, you have large slotting fees because retailers will let you in, but they're going to charge you. There are some retailers that will charge for a 4K slotting fee per flavor, per door to go into. So when you get stuff like that, unless you're going to be in there for several years, you're not going to be able to pay that back. So we had high slotting and our velocities weren't there. We differentiated, we had created our first product line that we call our core line, very electrolyte focused. I guess it wasn't differentiated enough. We created a second one that has metabolism burning stuff in it. It was much more developed. And then we did a much better job on the branding, but it was a little bit too late for the product line. And unfortunately, we didn't get the velocity that we needed to get. I think a little bit because we went too fast with distribution. I talked to a lot of people about the need to, the traditional launch of a product would be a natural foods, limited geographic launch, and then expanding that and then adding strategic grocery accounts, let's say, in there and then building that out over time. It was energy drinks, so I felt like we could go broader quicker. And I felt like with Kyle's background, that would help us. And I think what also happened is marketing has changed. It's been changing in the last five or six years. And it's gone away from, it was, it used to be, you have to hit a consumer seven times before they're going to know the brand well enough to be able to go in and make a destination trip and see it on the shelf and pick it up. It's gone away from that. And that the model was like field marketing and a lot of touch points to get in front of the product. And it's gone much more to influencer, ambassador, celebrity, kind of trusted confidant by the consumer who they can rely on. And it's really shifted that. I don't think we did a good job, Rowdy, in shifting that focus. And although Kyle is premier within the NASCAR channel, you know, he's not really well known outside of the NASCAR channel. So and then what mm -hmm. we also realized in the NASCAR channel is that people really like their driver and, you know, there's 40 drivers. So if he's not your, their driver, then they tend not to like that driver, you know, a lot of times. So there's a bunch of mistakes that we made along the way. Unfortunately, you know, with Rowdy, you know, we have had to make the decision to close it down. And that's been a very, very painful decision. One that we didn't take lightly. I didn't take lightly myself. I put an incremental million and a half dollars into the brand over the course of 2023 to try to make it work. We felt like we had another celebrity to bring in, another equity firm, but the deal kind of fell apart. It's very disappointing. Wonderful people in the organization, people that kind of gave their all. And unfortunately, it, it didn't work. And now I talk a lot with founders about don't throw the towel in if because you never know. Success might be right around the corner. And I know that feeling of you just let me give it a little more time. And, you know, in our case, the market told us that they weren't willing to invest more into it. And I was tapped out personally. And Kyle had put a lot of money into it himself. He was tapped out. And unfortunately, we weren't able to continue to, to effectively fundraise for it. So we had to close it down. But after a lot of very difficult discussions and us trying as hard as we could, but, you know, very challenging situation with, unfortunately, more lessons learned now, which I wasn't really hoping to have more lessons learned at 62 years old. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate the vulnerability and, and sharing all the lessons learned along the way. And 
I think a lot of people know I also was running an energy drink brand over the last couple of years, and I felt those market dynamics squarely. It's a super hot category, which means it's incredibly competitive as well, especially all of the new consumers that, you know, I think Celsius in particular has brought into the category. And then with the deal with Pepsi and all of the space that demands from retailers, they just make decisions a lot quicker. And I mean, I just saw a lot of category managers saying they were making very harsh decisions on space because of those things. So I certainly appreciate all the obstacles you were up against. And I also, yeah, I mean, every book that I read about famous entrepreneurs, I feel like there are points in there where they, the business is on the point of failing, you know, and it's either do or die. And I think, I mean, they probably know though, you know, in their hearts, whether it's something they need to fight through and just risk it all going for or versus you know making i think an informed decision about okay maybe this isn't the one and the next one might be yeah i think you need to see some proof point right you need to see some proof point that you can hang your hat on that okay we can see that this is working and therefore if we push more on this we're going to be able to make it work and you know while we saw nice improvements with the second product line that we launched you know we never got the branding right that was going to happen in 2024 and it was killer branding but we ran out of time and i do talk a lot with also people about the rule of twos i refer to it as is that everything takes twice as long as you think at the beginning and costs twice as much money and that's a little bit of an exaggeration but as an entrepreneur you don't want to go into something if it's just like tight as tight can be and you got to hit on every single metric in order for yourself to be successful because shit happens these are emerging i call them emerging shit show brands i mean it's like it's like ready fire aim you know you're dealing with a, a whole bunch of different things coming at you at all different times and they're they're challenging and that's why startups have a low you know probability of success unless they you know, use organizations like yourself, Startup CPG, you know, use the resources, use the tools that you have, use people that are, you know, had the learning experiences and just make sure that you've got, if you're a founder that you've got, and you're a sales and marketing oriented founder, is you've got a finance and accounting and admin type person. It doesn't have to be a co-founder. It can be, it can be an employee. It can be a family member. It can be a, a peer. It can be a partner, but just, you've got to be able to balance yourself so that together you've got real competency across all the functional areas, because if you don't, it becomes very apparent when you're going through the fundraising process that, okay, you can have the best sales and marketing person in the world, but if you don't know how to manage your cogs, make money on those products, then it doesn't really work. And you can have the best tightest process and all that kind of stuff in the world, but if you don't have the creativity and the ability to ask for the order and the uniqueness to, you know, get your, you know, grow that retailer's category, you're not going to get on the shelf. You know, so it's really important to kind of have to think through that stuff. Makes sense. Yeah. So what's next for you, Jeff? What, what will you be up to in the coming months and years? What's your plan now? Yeah, I mean, good question. I'm, I'm really um, interested in creating teamchurch.co. And uh, Nika was a great business because we were able to, you know, give back to people that didn't have what we have in the United States, frankly, and make a difference in their lives. And my wife and I, for a long time, have had a dream of creating a business called Dream Makers, where we could, you know, help people, you know, achieve their dreams by, you know, providing, you know, capital or experiences or knowledge, and just let, you know, give people that, not a hand out, but a hand up, you know, and help them do their thing and, and be all that they can be. And, you know, Team Church is really about working with, you know, entrepreneurs at, at any stage that they're at. And, and if I can add value to what they're doing, adding value in some way, if I can learn from them, you know, learning from them, you know, as well, but I really want to create a, um, a website that's got, you know, some services for people that you know, don't have the funds to pay for services, but also has some service for people that, that do, but has a range of offerings that, you know, range from, you know, kind of one-on-one -on -one monthly consulting by me to specific project type stuff to been thinking about potentially doing a masterclass. My kids want me to do that. I'm not really sure how to do that, but I feel like, it, I feel like working with, you know, 10 or so founders that are within a year of launching or a year just after launching would be a really great thing to do in a peer group to kind of benefit from people at different stages. So I've been flushing an idea out like, you know, with that, but I really want to, rather than do it um, as a, all those eight companies that I've had over the years, I've been the CEO and the person kind of at the mass, you know, doing it. And, you know, I'd really like to transition where I can work with other people that are in that position now. And I really find a lot of joy in, in working with people that, and there's so much to what I'm finding is, even if I'm consulting for someone, I ought to be able to save someone five times what they're, what they're paying me or what they're paying someone. Anyone that's paying an outside group that as an entrepreneur, you should be able to generate value of 5x 
what they're paying for you, or you should find someone that, that can. I find there's a lot of charlatans out here trying to pitch services that are gonna potentially pitch you down the wrong area. So it's really important. Again, if you align with people like yourself, Daniel, you know, you can help, you see it all day long, I'm sure, but you can help keep sticking the middle of the road for people. But you know, people just get bad advice. So if I can just help people get better advice, at least advice for me that worked, you know, I think that would be a, a positive thing to do. And I really enjoy doing it. Amazing. All right. Well, I'm really excited to see what kind of services you'll start offering through Team Church. And if you get that masterclass going, that'll be really exciting. So I just want to wrap up today's episode. So thank you so much, Jeff, for sharing all of these insights about entrepreneurship and you know, fundraising leadership. And I'm just really excited to hear more about your consulting for emerging CPG brands. And just before we go, is there a good way for people to stay in touch with you and hear more about what you'll be doing? Yeah, great question. And I would encourage people to just reach out to me through LinkedIn. You know, we're building out the teamchurch.co website and would love to hit me out on, on LinkedIn and love to start a conversation with you. Also, if you're as an entrepreneur, if you're anxious, you can't sleep, you're feeling the weight of the world, you know, you're probably doing things about right <laughs> if you're feeling that because that's kind of the, the status that you're in. And Daniel, you mentioned a couple of times, sometimes we kind of feel like we're going to lose it. I probably felt with Suja at least three times. I was looking over the abyss into, is this business going to make it or not? And I had my family's money into it, my own money into it, my friend's money into it, institutional capital into it. And, you know, those are heavy weights to, you know, to have, but keep true to your true north, keep your lighthouse and keep course correcting and work with, you know, organizations like Startup CPG, check me on LinkedIn, just ask for advice. You don't get what you don't ask for. So, you know, ask for it and, and you'll get more than you think. So I just encourage you to not be disillusioned in the process. You can change your stars. You can use it to jump socioeconomic levels. You can do all of that. If you work hard at it, you get a little bit of lucky, you surround yourself with the right people and you have a great product. I love it. Thank you for ending us on a very inspirational note. So thank you everybody for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Jeff Church, and definitely follow up with him on LinkedIn or via the website teamchurch.co. Jeff, thank you again. Thank you, Danielle. Appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Take care. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast today, it would really help us out if you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I am Daniel Scharf. I'm the host and founder of Startup CPG. Please feel free to reach out or add me on LinkedIn. If you're a potential sponsor that would like to appear on the podcast, please email partnerships at startupcpg.com. And reminder to all of you out there, we would love to have you join the community. You can sign up at our website, startupcpg.com to learn about our webinars, events, and Slack channel. If you enjoyed today's music, you can check out my band. It's the Super Fantastics on Spotify Music. On behalf of the entire Startup CPG team, thank you so much for listening and your support. See you next time.